Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Monday morning, the 7th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The government will announce next year's budget tomorrow. The Minister for Finance will detail spending in a package of €2.8 billion, but as €2.1 billion is already committed to expenditure measures, this will give Pascal Donoghue around €700 million to play with. Pensioners look set to be disappointed if they are hoping for an increase next year. Instead, targeted welfare increases will go to the qualified child allowance, the living alone allowance and more money will be set aside to give an additional two weeks parental leave. The government will set out measures uh, to protect the planet by increasing carbon taxes by six to seven euro a tonne. Petrol and diesel as a result will increase by about two cents a litre. Home heating oil by about 15 euro per fill, 15 cents on a bale of briquettes and 70 cents on a bag of coal. Let's talk about this with Eamon Ryan, the leader of of the Green Party. Good morning to you, Ryan. Thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. I suppose it's true to say that the government was heavily criticised last year because it did not increase carbon tax. This year it is being criticised for increasing carbon tax. Is it a case of being damned if you do and damned if you don't? Oh, well, yeah, no, you can't win in politics, particularly any time the word tax comes into it. Um I mean, I welcome that we are putting up the price on, uh, the, especially the price on pollution, because that carbon going into the atmosphere will be there for several hundred thousand years, and it's it's destroying our planet, it's destroying our, our, our the future for our kids. So, so we do have to put a price on it and try and switch away from it. To be honest, six or seven euros a ton ain't really going to do anything in, in that regard. Uh, as you say, it's about two cents on the litre. Um, but what I think Pascal would probably commit to is to say we'll do that each year for the next eight, ten years mm. and that we'll get to the what was agreed price uh, in the Oireachtas Committee that we should set a price at 80 euros a tonne. And, and that'll, so it'll go up each year by a similar amount, so it'll be a gradual process rather than anything dramatic. But how will we survive if these things become unaffordable? Well, one of one of the, I suppose one of the key questions then is what you do with the revenue that you raise. I mean, one of the proposals we had, and, and actually the Taoiseach had agreed with us, 
that what we should have done is is put the price on carbon because that gives an indicator to switch away from uh, more polluting fuels to less less polluting ones, um, and then return the revenue, give a cash back mm-hmm. to every citizen. Now that's not going to happen. The, the yeah. Taoiseach has obviously changed his mind on that. Why is that? Because I, I remember when you asked the Taoiseach if he would do that in the doll, and he said yes, he would. Uh, and I spoke to you, I think, the following day, yeah. uh, and asked you if you believed him or if uh, you'd be concerned uh, that he was just making the right soundings because there's so much pressure on government now to protect the planet and you said no no doubt about it you believed him completely but here we are now going into the budget and the Taoiseach is saying otherwise I think um, well firstly uh, I think it's a pity they are changing the mind because the analysis that's been done shows that that does protect those on lower incomes so uh, um, why is it changed um, uh, sorry and I think they will do some measures there'll be measures like increasing fuel allowance or um, putting up a special fund for mm. people who are like you know the likes of the workers in the Midlands who are affected by the closure of the peat plant so mm. it's not as if they won't do anything uh, the revenue to be honest at 6 or 7 euros a tonne is relatively small it'll be about 90 or 100 million euro so you know it's hard to address everything with that sort of volume I think one of the main reasons they changed is, is because the budget situation has worsened. Um, we were, I'm a member of the Budget Oversight Committee in the Dáil, and, which is a new committee. It's kind of meant to, we're meant to be learning from the lessons of the past and so we, we for, for months in advance, are poring over all the details and, and we listen to the Fiscal Advisory Council which is kind of, which has been set up after the crash as a means of uh, trying to make sure that government gets an independent warning if its budget policies are putting the country financially at risk. Now, the Fiscal Advisory Council were in last month uh, to the Budget Oversight Committee, and to be honest, they were scathing. They said, in the last ten, three years, we really have blown um, an upturn, in effect. They, they said that in, in the last three years, we've seen a €5 billion euro increase in corporation tax revenues that hadn't been expected and a €5 billion euro reduction in interest rates, because interest rates are so low globally now, that again hadn't been expected. So there'd been a €10 billion euro, um, kind of bonus, as it were. And this is in a budget of €55-60 euros. so so €10 billion isn't a small amount. Um, I think what their criticism is that we should have put that money aside for the rainy day for kind of a, if, mm. if there was a recession coming, then you kind of you start spending in a counter-cyclical way. And they say the government kind of has mismanaged it by, in a sense, what there was always like, in 2017, we went into 2017 saying uh, we'd spend an overall amount of 72 billion and we ended up spending 82. In other words, the forecasts of what we spent were never accurate. And every year, um, the spending overruns, particularly in health, meant that the budget figures weren't really realistic because you, you did a budget in October and then two months later in November, December, you did a supplementary budget because health was spending an extra billion than what people had mm. expected. So I think that's, and we'll be over by, yep. that's the main mm. reason I think we just... We haven't kept as tight a control on the budget in the last three years as the Fiscal Advisory Council would have liked to. Okay, and we'll be over health uh, spending will be over by uh, 300 million or, or thereabouts uh, towards uh, the end yeah. of this year. Uh, and uh, indeed, uh, we have been putting money away for a rainy day, but this year the Minister says he's not going to do that. He's going to put that into a fund uh, to try and uh, reduce the impact of Brexit. Uh, and Brexit is uh, the cloud that overshadows 
follows uh, the announcements uh, tomorrow. Uh, is it prudent to go ahead with the budget tomorrow? Um, you could, it's a good point. Could we could we delay it? Uh, I think it probably is, and, and probably is better to, to do it in the way that the Minister is, is proposing to do it, where you have a contingency fund that you then uh, crack open in the event of a hard no-deal Brexit. Um, uh, I think, to be honest, all the attentions on Budget Day, but in truth, come back to what I said earlier, I mean, this process started six months ago. The old-fashioned idea, you know, that it's all on Budget Day and it's all, mm. oh, you know, big, what will he take out of his bag of tricks? To be honest, there'll be nothing really unexpected or new in the budget tomorrow. Mm. And to a certain extent, the work is done the way it should be over a six, eight-month period. I mean, in a way, almost the budget process goes almost all year round because by the time you do the finance bill and the social welfare bill, which implement the budget measures, that brings you into the early in the new year. And before you know it, in spring, we're, we're working on our spring and some statement and, and working with the European Commission in terms of what our budget parameters are. So the old-fashioned idea that it's all on one day is a bit out of date now. It's actually a year-round process, pretty much. If the Minister frames it as a, a green budget, a climate change budget, uh, will he be accurate? Not that I can see. No, there's no real measures. Um, I mean, firstly, as I said, as you said in your introduction, the difficulty is there's so little money available. Mm. Um, there's about 700 million now. Out of that, uh, 300 million is going to be committed to the Christmas bonus, so you're down to 400 million. Now, you know, that sounds like a lot of money, but uh, in in a budget, as I said, if including capital, where we're spending 70, 80 billion, it's, it's a relatively small amount of money. We did our own budget submission last week, and we did put in a 1.2 billion uh, what we call a Green New Deal type budget. But one of the ways we were able to do that is we were shifting money out of roads into public transport and that's um, what we think is the right thing to do uh, because we think that public transport uh, spending is, is, is more desperately needed. Starting, I'd, I'd say, with rural bus services because uh, that's probably the area that's most disadvantaged in the current system. Um, we also have a significant investment in the likes of new forestry policy, which we set out last week in the Dáil. Um, the government will have a number of different things, but I don't, nothing I hear uh, in advance tells me that there's going to be any major significant change. I think what mm. they're relying on is the carbon tax, and to be honest, that on, the own, on its own is not enough. Well, that's it, uh, because people will have to drive, uh, and if uh, they have a petrol or, or a diesel car, they'll have to drive uh, that petrol or diesel car if uh, their house is heated by oil they'll have to buy oil to heat it and, and so on uh, but uh, this uh, won't uh, please uh, the protesters the Extinction Rebellion people uh, who'll take to the streets for the entire week in the capital uh, but if the minister wants to price petrol and diesel cars off the road for example uh, well then he has to make public transport available or make it possible for people to cycle uh, is he doing anything like that by way of a, an initiative or is there anything that he can say tomorrow that will appease the protesters and for that matter do you support the protesters I do support the protesters because uh, i think They've been raising the alarm now for the last year, along with the climate strikers, and I think that's we, that's needed. We are in a real crisis, both a biodiversity crisis and a climate crisis. And I think they've got the balance right in terms of really strong but peaceful protests. So um, they'll be very cognizant, as I said, not to lose public support, but at the same time to raise public 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 alarm. So I think they've done that well so far. 
Um, in terms of what the government's doing, I think Fine Gael, I mean, in fairness to our whole political system across every party now in the last year has turned around and said, OK, we want to address climate. Now, the difficulty is then when you actually translate that into, into kind of real measures, the, the government's climate plan is saying that we will reduce our emissions by 2% per annum in the next 10 years, and then we'll start ramping it up. Um, I don't think that's the right approach. I think it's much better to do, well, firstly, the science requires us to be much more um, ambitious. But also, I think there's an opportunity in doing this, that actually those countries and those locations and those towns that make the switch are going to be better off. It's not a negative. It's not a a kind of a hardship or a punitive thing. It, It is about being energy efficient, and that saves you money. It is about promoting walking, cycling and public transport, and that's going to work better. It is about developing our own energy supply. Uh, and in Ireland, we've, that's to our advantage, mm. not at our cost. You know, for us to kind of forever and a day rely on home heating oil or, mm. or imported petrol and diesel, where we buy it from Saudi Arabia and um, the Middle East and Russia, when we have huge renewable power supplies here. Maybe so, but until they're put in place, people will be right to ask why they're being penalised when there isn't an alternative. It's true, but the, the alternative is here now in terms of you, in terms of electric vehicles. They are actually becoming available pretty much widespreadly. If you can um, afford one. True, but uh, but the cost is coming down, and the cost of the yeah. fuel is a fifth of the cost of a petrol car, and the cost of maintenance is a similar fraction. So uh, if you do the maths in terms of they are starting to become very economic. And similarly in terms of home heating, um, if a house is well insulated, uh, home heat or heat pumps mm. now, which can use electricity to convert the heat difference between outside the house and the inside, and, and use that to heat the radiators. That's the best system. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, possibly made, so. But made, we also hear it costs fifty, sixty thousand uh, to make a house energy efficient. It is, and, we, and that's where we need to. Government needs to invest. Need mm. to invest in, in bringing down the cost of that and helping houses do it. But just one to flag on that is to say about that that te- mm. te- te- technology made in County Louth, like Glen 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 Dimplex is probably one of the leading. <laughs> I'm companies. sure uh, it may uh, not make it more affordable for people, though. No, but yeah. it but it shows mm. we can actually be good at this. Mm. Okay, uh, and I think that's we, you have to start seeing it not as something to be avoided and negative, but actually something that will help us uh, economically as well as environmentally. All right, we live there for the moment. Uh, the minister will announce uh, budget twenty twenty tomorrow. But thank you indeed for joining us in advance, Eamon Ryan, the leader of the Green Party. Michael Reed on LMFM. Right, the big unknown elephant in the room tomorrow and indeed over the course of this week and the next few weeks at a minimum is Brexit and we'll talk about where the Brexit negotiations are going now with Declan Brannock who's a Fianna Fáil TD in Louth and has come into studio with us and also with Padre Tobin, the leader of the AIM2 party at TD for Meath West and good morning to both of you and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, Emmanuel Macron is uh, said to have spoken to Boris Johnson over the weekend, Declan Brannock, and he told him he has a, a, until the end of the week to clarify things. Uh, do you think that we'll have any better understanding towards the end of this week? I don't know, Michael, to be honest with you. I don't think anybody out there, regardless of leaders or prime ministers of countries, um, indeed uh, the Finnish prime minister over the weekend also described the process as an absolute mess. So, you know, we're still at the very contentious issue of reconciling a hard Brexit with a promise of avoiding a hard border on this island. 
has been and remains the central dilemma mm. and what now is Britain's absolute tortured departure. Boris Johnson last week said he was putting in a final offer. Mm. He then described it as a, a broad landing zone. Um, over the weekend, I've heard some of his ministers describe mm. it as a starting point. Steve Barclay, the Brexit minister, seemed to be indicating uh, that uh, they get rid of that veto and uh, leave the DUP in a very awkward place. Well, I have to say, a lot of people were very sceptical of, of uh, the offer, and certainly we'd have caused to be on the basis of particularly the issue of consent, uh, and it'd been almost like an open season in a mm. referendum every four years, and given, obviously, uh, unionism uh, in the North, a veto over any decision. But on reading the seven-page document, I have to say that the movement in relation to regulatory alignment, particularly not just on, on agricultural goods and industrial goods, but generally in the main on, on, on most uh, goods, ha- has been a welcome move. Mm. And personally, uh, I believe that there is the basis of a negotiation if if the British government can get real in relation to understanding the dilemma of an Irish border. Mm. It's not about just movement of goods. It's about a culture. It's about uh, a, a people being used to uh, non-interruption of trade and any any suggestion uh, that still appears to be coming mm. from, from uh, Downing Street uh, that there would be any form of customs close to the border mm-hmm. or away from the border. Do you think that they don't them? understand it? Uh, uh, I mean, that would suggest a level of ignorance on their part, uh, and uh, I'm not sure that is the case. Is it possible that this is a, a case of having to be pragmatic and take into account the politics of all of this? Uh, no, I've always said from day one, in fact, back when Theresa May was Prime Minister, I said, if you come and walk the border, I equally said that to Boris Johnson, they send over officials who meet other officials who, you know, are there for a couple of hours. You've got to live that border as I have and indeed uh, the the people right across from Louth across to Donegal uh, to actually see that any interruption in trade will be that danger of going back to the bad old days. But I think we... Uh, here in Ireland, I've said it again for many weeks, need to remain calm. I think a solution, if it's not going to be reached this week, and you know, certainly the phrase of getting into the tunnel uh, doesn't appear to be even getting the headlights near that tunnel, mm. but with a bit of pragmatism in relation to re-looking and realising uh, that the difficulties on the border uh, of giving unionism vetoes needs to be looked at. Um, you know, I've mulled over it many, many times. We don't really have a problem uh, uh, in in the regulatory alignment. What we have a problem is is in customs, and if if and there are there are very few traders that need to be watched very, very carefully. And I do accept that you can have trusted trader and all that. You certainly the technology is not there, but you know, and, and it, that comes back to the point that people have made that it's uh, a half um, backstop. Uh, Time limited, half a backstop you know, that is but, time limited. But the more the more I read of of the proposal mm-hmm. from Boris Johnson, the more I see that there can be a late to get into that tunnel, if okay. people if people start to look that not alone can you should you have regulatory alignment north south, but equally a form of regulatory alignment east west. Mm-hmm. And if if Northern Ireland or the North of Ireland can have uh, the 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 opportunities to trade both into the UK and into mm-hmm. the EU market. 
Well, it begs the question, uh, should the 26 counties, uh, in that if there is customs to be provided in the mm. Irish Sea, and we know mm. that's not mm. very acceptable mm. to the DUP, that, that we could have the best of both worlds from a 26 county. And if the EU are really, really serious, and I do believe mm. they are in relation to the peace process, that the two islands could have a unique arrangement with a wee bit of clever thinking, whereby the customs and the custom controls would be either at Calais and indeed on entering and exiting uh, across the Irish Sea. Okay, that's a, a surprisingly optimistic perspective. Uh, let's hear from Padre Tobin. Uh, do you share in that optimism? Well, first of all, I think you mentioned something very uh, important there a couple of minutes ago. Um, the Tories know very little about Ireland. And indeed, there was a YouGov poll that was done recently uh, which showed that the majority of British people do not understand the issues regarding the Irish border. Uh, the vast majority of them admitted themselves that they don't understand it. Um, and it's, it's amazing that the north of Ireland, and in many ways our national interest, is being determined by you know, a group of people who know little or nothing about Ireland. And they're determining whether we can move people or products or services around our own island. And indeed, their actions will determine whether we will have a peaceful future or not. And I think that Brexit has, um, has shown to many people in flashing neon lights the damage to our national interests it is to allow the Tories to continue to determine uh, what happens in Ireland. And indeed, you can see that in the polls. The opinion polls in the North and the South, uh, for the first time in history, mm. have stated that the, um, the, the there majority, is a situation yeah. where mm-hmm. people want to see an all-Ireland solution to the issues that are happening in Ireland at the moment. And that's why we in AIM2 have been asking Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael to develop a new Ireland forum which would allow for civil and political views across the 32 counties. And we heard you ask that question of uh, the government last week in the Dáil. The response from Simon Coveney was uh, that it's too early for such a, an approach and uh, that uh, you could heighten tensions as a result. See, uh, when Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil typically talk about you know, building uh, an all-Ireland solution to the problems we have, it's always on the horizon. And the closer you get to the horizon, as you know yourself, you know, the horizon stays that distance uh, away from you all the time. And in, in actual fact, the, the uh, solution to most of these problems, to, to, to the hard border, is no border at all. Now, I'm talking about, you know, slow steps. I'm talking about partnership, agreement, mm. working with all the civic society and the political views that exist. Uh, in Ireland, North but, and but, South but you want to take this crisis as a, uh, an opportunity to worsen the crisis, uh, to force a, a border poll rather than solve the crisis that's uh, in front of you and find a Brexit solution. But Michael, we are in a crisis, and anybody that doesn't recognise the fact that we the crisis is is built mm. in part because we have Tories. In okay, the, well, I, I take that don't uh, understand as a way of saying yes to the question. Declan, De- Declan Brannock, would you not here. take this opportunity to force a, a border poll? Uh, absolutely not. I'm as a committed Republican, and indeed a Republican respect of other people's view of the world. And Fianna Fáil is committed to United Ireland, as is Pathos Party, and indeed the mainstream parties uh, from a southern perspective and the SDLP in the north. My view on this and my party's view on it would be very simple, that calls for border poll currently are designated to win party votes and popularity. They're I not, haven't even called it's, for it's, border it, poll. It, well, I know you haven't, Pather, but, 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 but people, you... Pe- down with, sorry, Pather, if you just the, let me finish my point. Pather, you're not too long away from a party that has been calling for a border poll poll. So, you know, if you would respect, just let me finish the point. I think it's all about securing a lasting peace on the island. And we do need 
unfortunately, again, maybe to give the unionists some slack, I have always held the view, and I personally hold the view, that unity is not about unity of land. It's about unity of our people, respect, growing our economy, uh, and indeed, unity will come about through prosperity. And as I said earlier in the programme, if we can get our economy right, uh, Mm. both economies correct, people will begin to see, and I believe the new generation and the younger generation coming up uh, want us to... to Sorry, the new generation coming up want us to grow that friendship. Unfortunately, people become entrenched in situations. I'm certainly not into a land grab. This is is not about land grab. This is about self-determination. This is about whereby Irish people north and south determine, people who know what's going on, people who understand the border, who, who are affected by the outcomes of it, simply determining our future together, North and South. It's, about, it's opposed to the idea that Tories in London determine what's happening in, in Ireland. And given the fact that they don't know anything about it, they have no skin in the game, they have no understanding, and it's not affecting them. It's never a bad do you, do, you, do, you, do you understand and it, Pat? Do you understand it, Pat Tobin? Against self-determination. Pat Tobin, do you understand it? It's incredible. Do you understand it? Do I do understand. Do you? Because Boris Johnson says he understands it, uh, and he says nobody uh, is going to split up the precious United Kingdom. The well, bo- first of all, I would say that Boris Johnson's solutions currently are a dog's dinner. He's looking to develop a regulatory border than the Irish. Well, Bar- Mr. Johnson might say your solution uh, is a dog's dinner because it will result in war, and there's no doubt about that. Well, well, first of all, what we're asking is that there would be a new Ireland forum. Where, and in fairness, a border the SDLP, poll the SDLP, would just res- let me finish, please. The SDLP, which are supposed to be Fianna Fáil's partners, have actually come out and welcomed Ain Tu's proposal of a new Ireland forum. Pather, you obviously the listen. You, are, you obviously, Pather, prefer we, to we, talk we, rather we than listen. I, sorry, Pather, at the very outset, when I came back in after you last spoke, I said, I, back I, welcome, I welcome the opportunity to have an All Ireland forum. Mm on any issue, but including on unity. But you know and I know that the Good Friday Agreement dictates when a border poll would happen. You also know, Pat, you also know, 51% plus one. 50% does not solve the problem. That cross purposes. What we're asking in Ain2 is that there would be a New Ireland forum which would allow for civil and political views across the 32 counties to come together and in partnership start to map out ways in which Irish people could determine our own future with regards to our economy, with regards to mitigating against the worst excesses of Brexit. And yes, we have a lot of people from the unionist tradition in the north of Ireland who are contacting Aintu, who said that they would have never uh, under- never uh, supported Sinn Féin, and they would have never supported uh, United Ireland before, but because okay. of the threats to their own livelihoods, because of the threats to the peace process, and because of the damage that the Tories in London are doing, they would like to discuss this. And all we're saying to, okay, to let me go back to the Declan government Brannock. is create an opportunity. Have the point. Let me go back to Declan Bronick. Uh, if ever there was to be a border poll, whether it was to be this year or in a thousand years from now, there is no doubt, is there not, that there would be a, a violent campaign response. Uh, I, I wouldn't have thought so 12 months ago. I certainly think that Brexit has stoked all the fears on both sides and indeed the whole issue of calling for a border poll is at this minute in time stoking sectarianism sentiment. As far as I'm concerned, uh, sorry, Pedro, would you please let me finish? Uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's about respect for both sides, mm. their identity, 
where they come from. It's not it's not my fault or your fault that we're strong Republicans. That's how we've been brought up and mm. that's how we view the world. But Unfortunately, others viewing in a different way. But just to finish, Michael. If there is to be a violent campaign, why, why, why don't we have it and get it over with? I mean, if, if it's inevitable whether that poll takes place now or in a thousand years from now, someday that poll is going to take place. So why don't we face into it? Well, I, I've lived the border. Uh, I've said to you so many times, Michael. Uh, in fact, Two of the bodies of the disappeared were discovered within a short distance of my home. Uh, what happened was face, not facing each other, turning our backs to each other in a form of friction will not solve the issues. It's about, building, it's about building a trust. And could I say that in recent times, the language that is being used is frightening particularly the unionists. I'm not here to speak for them, mm. but like like yourself, Paddy, you said you engage. I engage particularly through uh, Glen Cree Peace and Reconciliation, and I know the fears that unionism have, but I also know the fears that that the vast majority of thinking people and and those who I often refer to as a silent majority do not want do not want to contemplate a border poll unless it is brought through prosperity and brought about by improvement well, of our economy it, and an it, understanding it, the, of the, our the people. The point here is it may be brought through because of the opposite prosperity because of people being impoverished because of a, a deep recession that may occur as a, a result of Brexit. Well, well I think this is where Brexit itself, believe yeah. it or not, there's an opportunity in Brexit that we can turn this situation into uh, realising that unity is what really is important on this island because if our economies get the best of both mm. worlds then I think unionism will see that they will perform better okay. in an All-Ireland. Patter Tobin, yes. See, Liam Mellows was a, was a TD formerly in County Meath, and he said that if partition was to come about, there would arise two establishments in the north and the south that would actually come to depend on the border for their positions. And that's what we see. We see within the DUP and in the Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael establishment, that while they talk the talk with regards uh, in Irish independence and self-determination, that in actual fact, they're dependent on the existence of the border uh, for their power uh, within this state. Fianna Fáil is dependent uh, on the border, is it? Well, there's no doubt if, if, Fianna, if there was an All-Ireland uh, state in the, in, the, in the next couple of years, Fianna Fáil would come from the main opposition party to a, a much smaller party on the island of Ireland. What I'm saying to you is that self-determination is understood was a key driver of independence of this state. People uh, around the turn of the century realised after the famine that if you're ruled by London, London will never make decisions for the benefit of this country. It'll only make decisions for its own benefit. Well, I fully and, and agree it, with you, Pather, about self-determination. No, let me finish, Declan. <laughs> there came a generation of people who realised that Ireland's, uh, Ireland's interest was better served if we made those decisions ourselves. And now in the north of Ireland, there are many people from a unionist background who again see the Tories in London making decisions for their own national interest okay. with no care for what's happening in but here. But to the advantage and of Fianna Fáil in the south is, is what you're arguing. I, Declan Brannock, could I say, I, I'm not overly concerned about Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael or into for that matter. What I'm concerned about is people and that the unity that we talk about and the self-determination we talk about works both ways. Self-determination for republicanism is very important to you, Pat, and very important to me. Self-determination for those who have a different ethos, Mm. a different religion, a different view of life 
It is about respecting them. And I believe through that respect, and people will say, well, we've tried to respect them for many years and they're, they're not coming to sup at the table. I think they will <clears throat> through the development of our economy. And I'm convinced okay. that there are people in unionism yeah, who realise that unity of purpose in relation to our economy will achieve a unity. I, I am over time. It seems uh, as though the British Prime Minister's interpretation of making self-determination happen for his people... Uh, could result in him squatting in Downing Street, uh, mm. but uh, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thanks to both of you for coming in to us uh, this morning. Declan Brannock, Fianna Fáil TD in Loud and on the line, Ain Two leader, Patrick Tobin, who's a TD for Mead West. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Simon Harris, uh, the Minister for Health, has uh, said uh, that he intends banning the sale of e-cigarettes uh, to people under the age of 18, but he will not be meeting with representatives of the industry who may wish uh, to try and convince them otherwise. Uh, we'll talk about this with Chris Macy, Head of Advocacy with the Irish Heart Foundation. And a very good morning to you, Chris. And good morning, Michael. Thanks for joining us. I'm sure you can understand why uh, the industry would want to sell it to anybody who is willing to buy it. Uh, but would you support uh, the Minister's move to ban the sale of these e-cigarettes? Uh, to under 18, yes. absolutely. I mean, the usefulness of e-cigarettes is as a harm reduction tool, as a, as a last resort for long-term smokers uh, who've been unable to quit using any other method. Um, they may uh, eventually have some uh, use as a quit tool, but the evidence is unclear on that at the moment. It remains to be seen. But as far as under 18s are concerned, you know, th- there is absolutely no uh, reason uh, for these um, products to be sold or marketed to to, to young people. Uh, The health uh, community in Ireland has um, achieved an amazing feat really over the last 20 years. It's cut the, Mm. the, the, the use of, uh, of of cigarettes, the addiction to nicotine among uh, uh, young people down from around 41% in 1996 to about 12% now. And, you know, I, we're very concerned um, that, you know, th- that that could all, all that progress could be lost uh, because of e-cigarettes being marketed to children uh, and, you know, a whole new generation being addicted to nicotine. Are, are, are there children uh, who are taking up e-cigarettes without ever having smoked? Yeah, so there's there's some figures on the the, the figures in the US are, are the best on this and they're the most uh, up to date. Uh, so um, uh, w- what you have at the moment is you've had a surge in the use of e-cigarettes among high school students. It was 11.7% uh, were current users in 2017. Uh, preliminary figures uh, from the uh, FDA. Uh, for this year are putting it at 27.5% are current users. In Ireland, um, I suppose what you're looking at is figures that are only from 2015. There's new research coming out this year. Uh, Back then, uh, about a quarter of 15, 17-year-olds had ever tried e-cigarettes. 11% uh, said they had used them in the last 30 days. 6.8% were daily users. I think the the figure for... um, uh, uh, young people who'd never uh, smoked and were using them at that point was about 8%. Uh, we're expecting uh, this new, uh, with the surge in the US, mm. and the marketing tactics being replicated you know, online, uh, we're expecting a big surge in that and we should know before the end of the year exactly where we stand, but it's very worrying. And there have been reports of uh, people falling ill from using vaping. 
Yeah, so th- I mean, this is uh, from the US, and uh, I-, I suppose there's no definitive uh, uh, explanation. Uh, cause being, mm. being, yeah, mm. being mm. found at the moment. And th- the worst thing, you know, we've been urging caution on the use of e-cigarettes for a long time, and we're we're continuing that. Uh, you know, th- th- things come out, and you know, uh, y- you've got to get to the bottom of them really mm. before you can make definitive statements on what the Centers for D- Disease Control in the US are saying mm. is that seventy seven percent of US cases that is analysed involve people who'd used um, uh, devices to inhale uh, the cannabis compound THC. But the New England Journal of Medicine uh, recently said that 80% of those involved have been using both uh, 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 nicotine vaping and this psychoactive uh, THC at the same time. So, I mean, we have to wait and see mm. with that, uh, you know. Uh, D- until you have a definitive said, a, a explanation well, uh, on I mean, both what, sides of the debate. Absolutely, uh, it, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and Look, this is the know, thing. It, is it a good tool to help people give up cigarettes or is it too risky because yeah, it look, may make I mean, you in, ill? In the US they say 13 people mm-hmm. have died from this. 480,000 people are dying every year mm-hmm. from tobacco uh, related death in the US. So, you know, that puts it in some perspective. Uh, you know, uh, when you light a cigarette you, you mm-hmm. ignite roughly 4,000 poisons and, you know, there's, there's hardly uh, a substance as, as dangerous to mankind as, it, as, uh, over, over a long period as, as smoking. Sure, but it does uh, beg so, the question about flavoured yeah. e-cigarettes doesn't it? Uh, because, yeah, I mean, if there is any doubt uh, as to the safety of these things, why would anybody start them without ever having smoked, without using them as a tool to give up smoking? Uh, and quite possibly because they are flavoured. Absolutely. Flavoured cigarettes, uh, uh, e-cigarettes, as far as we're concerned, are designed to attract young people who aren't addicted to nicotine uh, to use these. We know from uh, online and we know from billboard advertising even here that's allowed uh, that, you know, this is being... Uh, promoted as a sort of a, a healthy uh, 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 lifestyle mm. choice for young people, and that's entirely wrong. Addiction to nicotine is not going to do anyone any good, uh, particularly when you know the large international companies are tro- controlled by big tobacco. Uh, those guys controlling your addiction is not a good place to be uh, for a child or for anyone else. And uh, yes, we, we we're very concerned mm. about that. We think flavoured uh, tobacco should be, or sorry, flavoured e-cigarettes mm. uh, should be banned, yep. along with ad all advertising of e-cigarettes okay. uh, and 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 the, that ban uh that uh, the minister is introducing for under 18. Okay, controlling your addiction and your bank account to a large degree as well it would seem, but we'll leave it there for the moment Chris, and thank you indeed for joining us as always Chris Macy, Head of Advocacy with uh, the Irish Heart Foundation Michael Reed on LMFM Good morning Michael, really busy this morning, lots of texts coming in and people on the phone lines so we'll get straight to it, Mairead from Drogheda read the carbon tax increases it appears that there'll be some help for those on social welfare, but what about those of us working and just barely making ends meet. We will be hit again. Are we not paying enough? The USC was supposed to be temporary when the country went bust, but we are still paying that too. Okay. Declan from Navin, I really think because of the special circumstances re-Brexit that the government should have held off on this budget until after October 31st. It's only a few weeks to wait. It's pointless, this budget, because we don't know what the outcome of Brexit is going to be, Hmm. says Declan. Yeah, well, quite possible we'll have another budget or supplementary budget in the coming weeks. A texter says that politicians of all parties should be ashamed of themselves if they allow carbon tax to go up. The hike will mean a fill of heating oil could go up by at least €15 and electricity and gas bills are going to go up. 
uh, those there'll only be help it seems in the budget for people on limited resources while the rest of us will have to budget to be able to pay this fuel price hike. Maybe it's time to look at fitting all houses with a carbon calculator. The more you burn in your stove, fire, etc. Example, old sticks or turf direct from the bog, Mm -hmm. old rubbish like shoes, milk cartons, etc. The more carbon tax you pay. Well, I suppose you will uh, because of uh, the cost, the additional cost as a a result of carbon tax uh, on the fuels themselves. But uh, maybe you're burning more coal because your house isn't as well insulated as somebody else who can afford to insulate it. And therein lies some of, uh, I suppose, uh, the worries that people have about how this tax uh, will be distributed. And there is a lot of worry, Michael, out there. Uh, a text, another texter says, my family's day-to-day outgoings have increased year on year, yet our income has not increased. It's all right for Eamon Ryan on his big fat wage. Just last year alone, my car insurance has increased. Petrol has increased. Mm. Gas heating has increased. ESB too. Weekly food shop, Michael, has increased. Back to school more expensive than last year. I can't get grants for making my home energy efficient as I'm renting. My rent has increased year after year. What do I do, says this listener. Okay. Joe from RD is retired and he travels three times a year on holidays and he says, why not tax the flights. I don't mind paying an extra 20 or 30 or 40 for a flight. He says I was at Dublin Airport a few weeks ago on the tarmac waiting to board a flight and the engines were going and it nearly poisoned me. What is it doing when they are flying over the sky to Ireland? Mm. I feel that it's not right to tax those poor people who are having to drive to work because they are already paying a fortune for the car insurance tax tolls and now this tax the flights says Joe he doesn't okay. mind paying All right, interesting stuff and uh, obviously some very strong feelings being expressed uh, there on uh, the phones uh, stay with us uh, Marie we're going to go to the phones uh, Kevin Howard branch secretary of uh, the Dundalk IT Teachers Union of Ireland is on the line with us and a very good morning to you Kevin and thanks uh, for joining us it seems as uh, though uh, there's uh, been a, a serious uh, disagreement uh, between the teachers, uh, the students and DKIT itself. Yeah, good morning, Mike. Well, uh, I think you're referring to the issue around the graduation. Mm. Yeah, uh, the the Teachers Union of Ireland's position is this is very, it's, it's not necessarily a union position, but we're supporting the students and their demand that the graduation be brought, brought back to DKIT. Right, uh, uh, instead of uh, the Torn Theatre, is it? Well, the Torn Theatre is the latest, uh, the latest episode. Originally, it was due to take place in the uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral. Now, we, 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 no one in the college knew about this until uh, we find out, uh, really, the, the, presence of the, the president of the Students' Union said he found out on the corridors. So when the students found out about it taking place in the cathedral, I don't think they were best pleased and they made some representations and therefore the, the, the St. Patrick's Cathedral was, uh, withdrew its support, I think. Mm. So it switched into the ta- to town hall. So what's the problem, though? Why, why uh, do students want it on campus? Why do the teachers want it on campus, for that matter? Well, we've always had it on campus and it works very well. It's the biggest day of our year. It's the one day when we really can showcase the, the institute. The, the effort that the staff put into the, making the college look really, really attractive is, is immense. And everybody really pulls behind the event and really, really, you know, it's a fair mm. celebration. And as a lecturer here, I can tell you so many times that when 
students would bring their parents in and meet you and show them around the college. It's, 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 a, it's the best day in the calendar of DKIT's calendar. And to take it away from here without any consultation, without any reason as to why, it seems to us bizarre in the extreme. Most particularly when you think about what it's going to involve. Shuttle buses from here down to the town for the 14 different ceremonies that are going to take place in the town hall. It's ridiculous. And then to walk people through the town in some kind of procession, through the traffic, through the roadworks, to apparently the Imperial Hotel for a reception. Well, we've wonderful, excellent facilities here. It just seems really, really ludicrous. And most particularly as we've given no indication as to why this is happening, why it's being taken out here in the first place. There was no consultation whatsoever. And you haven't been responded to because you've made these objections very public at this stage. Oh, no, we haven't been responding to it at all, no. Oh, OK. All right. Uh, but I suppose that's what you want is discussions. Well, two th- well it's, it, I think the students want the uh, graduation brought back here, and we really would support them in that because it's worked so well for so many years. I mean, it's, as I said, it's, it's the biggest day in our calendar. Mm. And then discussions as to why it was moved in the first place would be, would be uh, I think, just basic courtesy. Okay, so 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 you're not open to discussing the possibility of having it outside. So what what does that mean? How how displeased are students and teachers about this? Are you going to participate? Well, you see, the, the students will lead this. Is the, is the students? Uh, this is the students' demand. It's their day. I mean, the students graduate. You know, sometimes only once. And I know that the uh, the president of the students' union is actually graduating uh, this time around in the end of October. And, and he's very unhappy about the idea of not taking place on the uh, campus. And I think he's, he speaks for an awful lot of other students who feel similarly. OK, well, a couple of weeks uh, for a resolution, if one is to be found. Uh, we leave it there for the moment, though, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Kevin Howard, Branch Secretary of Dundalk IT Teachers Union of Ireland. Now let's go back uh, to the phones and some more of the calls that you have there, Marie. OK, Michael, just back to carbon tax and the concern over that. Pat from Balbriggan, he's echoing similar sentiments to Joe when he says that, what about a carbon tax on aviation fuel? He's saying how many Green Party members are driving electric cars or taking public transport to their meetings? Does Eamon Ryan and the Green Party really care about the poor at all? He's He believes... Uh, that only three ministers have electric cars and says that maybe the party should practice what it preaches. Another Mm. listener says if they are putting extra tax on fuel, why not take the same amount of tax off electricity? Michael, I'm Carol from Midloud. I wonder will the wages in the country increase uh, with these extra taxes? I doubt it. In fact, with Brexit looming, it's very uncertain time in many workplaces mm. and people are already worried. Well, it would be futile to increase wages. Uh, the idea is uh, that you don't spend your money on petrol or diesel or oil or coal or briquettes, that you use alternatives. Uh, and the question I think many people have is if there are alternatives and if there aren't alternatives, is this a penalty rather than an incentive? Mary says, my old cottage, which with double ceilings, is F-rated. I could not afford to make it ready for electric heating. I can't reduce my oil use because I live in a cold house. All that is happening is that I am going to pay more for my heating. Okay. Mm. Uh, Mr. Ryan wants to introduce wild wolves back into the country. What a joke. It seems to me that the Greens have no constructive policies and there are enough wolves 
in Dáil Éireann, hmm. says another listener. Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, have we time for one more? Okay. Um, Michael Reed has played right into eco-hyper alarmist Eamon Ryan's hands by saying to Ryan that eventually there will be enough renewable power, quote, once it's built, unquote. The maximum amount of intermittent wind and solar that will ever be available on the grid to power industry business homes and transport in the cold and dark intensive period of October to March is 30% to 35%. Removing removing all fossil fuels from the European grid will eventually result in winter electricity blackouts in fossil-free Europe. Okay. Interesting stuff. Thanks uh, for that, uh, whoever it was uh, that got in touch with us with that uh, comment uh, and everybody who has uh, been in touch. Thanks, Marie, for that matter. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, last week, uh, former Detective Inspector Pat Murray launched his uh, book, The Making of a Detective, in uh, Drogheda. He's in studio with us. Uh, this week uh, to tell us a, a little bit about his career of 33 years as a, a member of Angarda Shiakana. In the book, he, he tells stories about quite a, a number of people who would be very well known, or at least their names would be very well known to anybody living in, in this part of the world. Irene White, Adrian Donoghue, Tony Golden, Rachel O'Reilly or Rachel Callaly, uh, who was murdered by her husband Joe, Mary Goff, Niall Dore, Jacqueline McDonough and Wayne McQuillan. And of course, uh, the story of Kira Breen is told extensively in Pat Murray's book, The Making of a Detective. As I say, he's here with me this morning. Good morning and thank you for coming in to us. Good morning, Michael. Uh, nice to have you with us here in the studio this morning. Uh, you're looking back on a very long and interesting, if not sometimes dangerous career. Uh, 33 years as a, a member of Angarda Shia Khan. Uh, you became a guard when you were 24, I think. 24 in 1985, uh, yes. But you, you, you first applied when you were 17. Yes. Uh, but you wanted to be a guard, it's probably true to say, at a much younger age, uh, when you were a young boy running around in Navan. Yes, indeed. Uh, I tell the story when I was about 8 to 10 years of age. My mother sent me for the, to the shops for some messages. I... Uh, encountered a guard at the shop and uh, I was struck by his uh, demeanour and uh, his uniform and mm. he actually turned around to me and said hello young man how are you and I just sort of with a little bit of a shock but when I got home I told my mother I met a guard and she of course told me well guards are good people and they uh, lock up bad people and they keep the good people safe and mm. all that the usual so uh, we had a, a family friend who was a guard who used to call to us and he'd call in uniform and uh, I was always enthralled he'd let me play with the handcuffs or the baton or mm. he'd be showing me how to put someone in a in an arm lock and that yeah. type of stuff so I was sort of bitten from a an early stage about guards and what they stood for and was it policing or was it on Garda Shiakana I mean did you watch Starsky and Hutch and Hawaii Five-O and all that sort of thing yeah, well I have to admit uh well, I have to admit, I'm a, a Colombo fan myself. <laughs> and Endeavour, uh, yeah, 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 like Morris. Mm. So they're uh, the ones I would watch, like, you know. But uh, uh, I always wanted to be a guard and uh, went when I was 17 to the local guard station to get an application form. And I remember the sergeant there, a big, strong man, 
uh, he grabbed me by the shoulders and shook me, rattled me, and he says, you want some meat on you first before you join up, he said, and number two, you're only 17, you have to be 18. Mm. So he sent me on my way. And, I and said, you took eight years to fatten up. Yeah, yeah, I did, yeah, I'm fairly fat now, but now and never. Oh, I didn't mean that. <laughs> no, but uh, I uh, uh, worked in the private sector for uh, seven mm. years before I joined the guards, mm. I, uh, and uh, one of the jobs that I did was a packaging designer for Union Camp who were in Ashburn at the time and I worked there as a designer mm. and I always felt uh, that the job I was doing there I had to use my brain to come up and solve uh, packaging problems for companies mm. that had automated machines and that so I, I uh, was all the time thinking of how to solve problems Right. and when I went into the guards I still had that mindset with me mm. and I think that really uh, came across in my uh, investigations where I didn't stop at just ticking the boxes mm. I went that bit further and looked for uh, expert opinions in certain fields and mm. we, we it's covered quite extensively mm-hmm. there in the making of a detective uh, where I used external experts to uh, prove uh, circumstances mm. and that. And, and you had a, a methodical uh, approach oh, yeah. to yeah. investigating any crime uh, and there were certain steps that you took as a matter of course. Yes. Uh, but before becoming a, a detective, uh, you came out of Temple Moore as a, a 24-year-old, a, a young rookie, and uh, you had to get to the stage uh, where you had uh, the experience uh, as well as the skills to tackle some of uh, the big crimes that I mentioned uh, at the start. Uh, and yes. the learning started more or less straight away. Uh, and uh, there was a, a sense that I got from uh, the book uh, about... Uh, how you were very much out of your skin having to police uh, a, a corpse uh, and the feeling uh, of having to provide security in that situation. Yes, uh, I cover in the book uh, respect of my first encounters with dead bodies and how mm. I reacted to them. The first post-mortem, uh, I couldn't stomach it and I got sick. Uh, it was as simple as that. Mm. Uh, then I um, had to spend a night in the morgue with a dead body preserving it, a body a chap who had been shot in the head and I covered that and how uh, that night went for me. But unfortunately you, you do, it's not that you become complacent but it, it's mm. part of a detective's job to face dead bodies and to deal with them and you get used to it I suppose mm. to a certain degree uh, but you don't lose any respect for the for the, the deceased and mm. I cover that in the book where you know at the scene of a murder it's, it's a lonely silence it's 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 uh, there's a sadness and a, and a and you but you have to sort of uh, engross yourself in what you see and what you what's there like you mm. know to be able to progress your thinking on uh, uh, and that learning began in 1985 when you graduated that's a long time ago a there's a lot of people listening to us this morning who weren't born in 1985 yes. uh, there were other things that weren't in this world in 1985 we didn't yeah. have the internet uh, yes. we didn't have mobile phones let alone smartphones uh, and technology has advanced at a rapid rate and with that policing methods has had to follow and catch up absolutely like you know the the uh, if you take let's say the joe riley case uh, it was the first time that uh, we in, uh, looked at cell site analysis and as that it was, was to do with the mobile phones to do with the mobile mm. phones and we were able to discover that uh, joe uh, had made a number of calls and texts on his phones which 
was able to plot his uh, uh, and, and knock his alibi out of the park where he had said he had been in Broadstone in, in, in Dublin uh, all that morning but we were able to see from the phone analysis that he had travelled out to uh, Baldara where his wife was killed and mm. travelled back at the time uh, he, the murder occurred. So, And that, that he had called his lover yes. uh, in the interim uh, despite having told you yes. at the scene of the crime that yes. neither he nor Rachel had ever had an affair. That yeah. uh, immediately yeah. raised uh, alarm bells in your head. That's correct. Uh, first time I met Joe, it was outside the uh, house. Uh, it was unusual because he was standing on his own. I introduced myself. I sympathised with him. I told him that uh, we would be doing our best. And I did specifically say to him, like, don't talk to the newspapers at this stage. Let, let us do our business. Like, and uh, it was strange because he was just standing there on his own mm. and his the Callaly family were all embraced and in the early stages of grief down the road a bit and I would have expected him to be down in the middle of them but he wasn't and I just thought that a little strange like. Mm. but that night uh, I interviewed him at length in his mother's house uh, with two other uh, Gardaí and um, the thing that pricked my ears was that the uh, first question I asked, I said, who would have killed Rachel or had she any enemies? Or, And he said, absolutely, there's nobody. He couldn't think of anybody. And I said, maybe she was having an affair and it was a disgruntled wife that maybe had this done. And he said, uh, neither of us are having affairs. And uh, I thought that strange because I didn't ask about him, but he put himself under that umbrella. And that sort of got me thinking a bit. So I he said, there has to be something here. So I asked him a second time during the course of the conversation and he denied it. So before we left, I looked straight into his eyes and I said, Joe, are you having an affair? And uh, he sort of just said, well, I did have an affair, but it's over now and I don't want my family to know about it. And that was it. I asked him who it was and he said it was this girl, Nikki Pelly. And I said, fine. Uh, and I said, when was the last time you spoke to her? And he says, well, today at 12 o'clock uh, whatever you know and uh, I says grand and uh, we went and made our inquiries read Nikki Pelly and she admitted that she had an affair with Joe and she was playing it down and as the investigation progressed uh, she came on side on the, on the basis that she told us that she, she did have a full affair with Joe she was in love with him and she wanted to move on with him so this was a totally uh, not in keeping with what Joe was telling us mm. And we asked her, uh, like, you know, why did you, uh, you know, play it down? And she said, well, Joe says uh, to play it down because it might be seen, it might look like as if it was a motive. Mm. So those type of things sort of get you interested, like, you know, that... Everybody was interested in that yeah. case. It was a very long-running investigation uh, well, and uh, it quite often made front-page news. Uh, yes. uh, and uh, at one stage, uh, you were getting phone calls when you were away on holidays in Spain. Yeah, well, I was on another murder investigation in Spain at the time and uh, we were told that uh, Joe was going on the Late Late Show with Rose Callaly and uh, we thought this very strange because... Uh, I had no knowledge of this and I was dealing with the Callaly family and that. And you'd asked them not to yeah, speak to the media. media yeah. yeah, and uh, wh when the team were relating back over the phone as the uh, Pat Kenny was interviewing uh, Rose and, and Joe and it seemed to be bizarre like what was being 
relayed back to us that Rose was very uncomfortable with Joe there and he was blathering on, not making much sense. Mm. So when I did come home, I looked at the footage and I was, like everyone else, I said, God, this is out of sync with what he's supposed to be there to do. And it was quite evident that Rose was keeping her distance from him. She nearly wanted to move the seat away from him. Um, And I think a lot of people on that night said, look, there's something not right with this guy. And they watched with intent over the following period of time until he was convicted, you know. Mm. Uh, you know, so, like, obviously we, we were looking for, uh, we had a, we had a number of, we had, the, let's say, the cell site analysis at that stage in a mm. preliminary format, which obviously led to our suspicion that he was the person who committed mm. the murder. Uh, and that uh, involved uh, bringing experts from, from overseas. From France, yes, mm-hmm. indeed. And uh, they were able to draw up a chart and we presented this mm. chart at the trial uh, which showed the movements of Joe that morning, mm-hmm. which was very, very, you know, it was very methodically done and it mm-hmm. showed the pattern of his movements that morning. And it was the was first totally time that yeah. evidence of that sort yes, was, was used. Was used yeah. uh, and you've been to the forefront uh, of this type of evidence uh, that relies on technology in the Mary Goff investigation. It yes, was, that was internet the fir- searching. searching. Yes, mm-hmm. and that was the first time uh, that we sort of were introduced to the internet Mm. and we could see where Colin had uh, uh, searched sites in respect of uh, asphyxiation and how to render Mm. someone unconscious and like you know uh, Mary was uh, uh, for your listeners that might know the the circumstances uh, Mary and Colin were in the house and Colin said she fell down the stairs and uh, uh, it transpired from the postmortem that she had been strangled by way of ligature, even though there was no ligature mark. But we were able to show that he had researched uh, um, uh, Henry Lewis Wallace, who was a guy convicted of nine murders of mm. women, and he used towels and various ligatures that didn't leave a mark. And uh, we were able to show that he followed that type of, of uh, modus operandi and killing his wife. Uh, After reading about it. Aren't After, you? Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you'd have strong feelings about how people like uh, Colin and Joe Riley should be dealt with uh, by the judicial system and that a, a premeditated murder mm. should in effect result in a life for a life. That if you take somebody's life intentionally that you should spend life in prison. Yes, I cover it in the book, uh, my own views, that uh, if you premeditate a murder and you're caught and convicted, you should remain in prison for the rest of your life. If you have, uh, like I call it, murder in the second Mm. degree, then that uh, if you were a participant in some way keeping a sketch but didn't actually commit the murder, you should, and you're caught, you should do at least 25 years without uh, parole, uh, being able to apply for parole, and then murder in the third degree, which would cover manslaughter, um, that you at least serve a minimum of 10 years before you uh, could apply for parole. But uh, the circumstances, and I explain in the book about involuntary and voluntary manslaughter, and like not all cases are... Um, just straightforward. Uh, I do cover in the chapter, one chapter on assaults where people may get one punch uh, and die uh, several days later and that punch was the cause of that death. Uh, I have it where a guy in Drada here was assaulted and he died several days later. We believed it was a result of the assault but uh, we were able to state pathologist was able to prove beyond doubt that uh, it was a natural died of natural causes in the end of the day so mm. uh, 
you know so it's it's an interesting as, an interesting mm. aspect of that chapter of the book um uh, and disappointing uh, i gather uh, when justice is not seen to be served if people feel that a, a, a life has been taken and that somebody hasn't been yes. made responsible for yes. that and i think to some degree that might be the case with Niall Dorr's family uh, because whilst somebody was convicted, uh, yeah. they died shortly afterwards in prison. Yeah. Uh, and you speak about some of the disappointments you've had over your career. And yeah. I, I think the biggest disappointment uh, you say in the book uh, was the investigation into the disappearance of Kira Breen. Yes, poor Kira went missing in 1987. She got out the window of her house to meet somebody and she never came back. Uh, she's never seen or found. Uh, and we did investigate it and uh, discovered who um, and was able to put someone in the suspect bracket for it. Uh, he was arrested and questioned uh, and uh, unfortunately uh, we had to release him without any charge. Um, we did, through the course of the investigation, discovered that uh, we believe she was buried in Balmer's Bog in, in Dundalk and I'm quite um, of the view that she's still there. Um, we obviously... There was a thorough search of that. It was a, it was a thorough yeah. search of it's 17 acres, the, the mm. bog, and uh, uh, we had to sort of reasonably assume where she was, given what information we had. And I was hoping that we would find her in that area. But when we started the excavation, we discovered that 500 tonne of rubble had been dumped in the area where we had the, an interest uh, and um, the anthropologist uh, told us that look at your you're really uh, up against it here because any bones will be crushed and mm. there'd be powder now like so you probably are not going to find anything but we still went ahead with the search and unfortunately we didn't find anything but we were so close to solving that crime that mm. if we had come across any part of Kira Breen uh, discovered in the bog I think we would have had someone charged so okay. that's how close we were but so far as well like when you know all I wanted to do really was bring home Kira to Bernadette that was it and you can think of the pain that lady suffered over the years like her only daughter mm. the only child that she had and she was her life and then taken away in such circumstances um, it's horrendous like you know it yeah. really is horrendous uh, there's no doubt Bernadette died broken hearted broken hearted no Absolutely, doubt yeah. 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 ok uh, well you've retired now uh, you yeah. retired last year uh, and uh, you reflect on your 33 years as a member of Angarda Siakana in uh, the making of uh, a detective uh, I think you'll always have the guards in your blood uh, would that be right to say well I have my own private mm. investigation business now and I still mm. have that tra train of thought to get to the truth of matters yeah, you know yeah, yeah. I know they're probably mm. just false claims or exaggerated claims or whatever they're not murders but mm. still I have that uh, like to think it out you know mm. but when you read stories in the papers this morning let's say uh, about uh, allegations of corruption amongst members of the force uh, to yeah. do with road traffic accidents mm. or offences yeah. uh, and GAA members yeah. uh, does that jar with you? Because I, I know uh, you write in the book uh, about the Morris McCabe scandal uh, and uh, the morale of the force, I suppose, as yeah, a result. Well, yeah, well, what I say in the book is that, like, I'm not into Garda bashing, but uh, we've all had our uh, belly full of uh, what went on with poor Morris McCabe and that, you know, and uh, it's sort of... Um, but, like, what I do reflect on as well in the book is that, like, the massive work that's done by Garda Shia mm. and respect of what we have to do 
in uh, murder investigations where, you know, we have to go to the end of the earth to, to, to solve it. Mm. And I have to uh, acknowledge the members of the detective branch in Dundalk, Drada and RD who were superb men and women, really top class. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you, you have very high praise for the chief superintendent in the book as well. I have mm. indeed. Uh, Christy Mangan, the chief superintendent uh, in Drada has been a breath of fresh air to policing uh, in Loud. Mm. And he has a good... Uh, wide uh, um, uh, understanding of all aspects mm. of policing and he has shown that. And, and he has his work cut out for him he as we'll be hearing cut, in a few yeah, minutes. But, yeah. mm-hmm. but he's a good mm. man, a good one. He's, a, he's really a, 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 um, someone that mm. can, can lead and bring people along with him mm. and not afraid to make decisions. Uh, okay, well, look, thanks uh, for coming in to us uh, to tell us a, a little bit about the making of uh, a detective, your book, Pat Murray, uh, about your career, but it, it's also a reflection of uh, the incidents uh, that we've lived through in this community uh, that uh, you've uh, been working on uh, and helping to protect the community over that 33 years that you I, served I as a member. So. Yeah. I guess so, okay. yes, Michael, yes. All right, well, look, thank you for joining us here on the programme this morning. Thank you. That's uh, retired uh, Detective Inspector Pat Murray. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, we've uh, just heard uh, Pat Murray sing uh, the praises of uh, Chief Superintendent Christy Mangan, who, uh, as you heard, has his work cut out for him in many respects, uh, none less uh, than the ongoing feud in Drogheda between two criminal gangs. And as you've been hearing this morning, Bishop Michael Reuter has uh, called on those gangs to enter into talks and has once again offered his services as a mediator to mediate between uh, the two rival feuding gangs. Let's uh, talk uh, about uh, this with Labour councillor P.O. Smith and a very good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, There's been a a number of such offers indeed. I think uh, the Chief Superintendent uh, at one time offered to mediate uh, and uh, there hasn't been any take-up on that. Uh, But we're reading today that the hitman who killed Keith Brannigan was paid €50,000. This is in an exclusive story that Nicola Donnelly has in uh, The Star. If that's correct, uh, it brings about a a very sinister twist to to how this feud is being dealt with and how difficult it becomes to investigate people who don't live in the area. Good morning, Michael. Yes, it is difficult. Uh, I think it brings uh, into into stark light of day the extent of the problem and not only that, but the amount of money that's involved in the drugs trade uh, in our towns and cities across the country, and um, when somebody can be paid fifty grand to take out a life, and uh, that's the reality of it. That's the reason why a lot of this trouble is going on, uh, because there's big money to be made in in, in regards to drugs, and uh, the state and the and the community and the police were at a loss in relation to how to address that this this problem at this point in time. Well, more resources uh, was the call over and over again. And to some extent, they arrived, uh, and they arrived uh, undoubtedly because of uh, the 28 additional guards, wasn't it? And, of course, uh, the armed support unit, uh, which uh, was very visible in the town. Uh, There's no sign of them anymore. Uh, We asked uh, the Guard Press Office, what was that? Have they been stood down, or has uh, the level of resource uh, that was deployed to Drogheda decreased to some degree. Uh, we got a, a response uh, from the Garda Press Office uh, this morning saying uh, they don't comment on the strength of different units for operational u- reasons. What, what, what's your thoughts on this? Uh, do you believe they've been stood down? 
Yeah, well, I, I actually seen the armless branch unit over the weekend, so uh, they must be still in and around Drada. So uh, certainly not in the same numbers that they once were. Yeah, well, I dispute that. I mean, my I've seen them in uh, over the last week, definitely, and in various locations around town. So uh, uh, whether or not other covert units are, are operating at the same level, I'm not sure. But you see, the problem for us is that every time there's a lull in violence, people go back to doing what they normally do, and they we push this type of thing to the back of our minds and pretend it doesn't exist. And mm. um, The other problem that we have too is that we have to rebuild trust in the communities and in the guards and in the institutions of the state because people believe that uh, even going to the guards with information, there's no point in doing that because nothing will be done. Not because the guards can't do anything, but because basically uh, the level of uh, evidence that's required to put somebody away is very, very high. Mm. Uh, so, you know, we're starting from the ground up here in relation to uh, trying to build trust in communities and, and, and get the guards back into the communities uh, itself, but also in regard to trying to get the, the local authority and the other services in, into, into communities to try and empower communities. And this is a long-term yeah. process that has to take place. I, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, you certainly uh, are clear in uh, what you're saying uh, about the armed response units uh, and that you've Ooh. seen them. Uh, but I've yeah. heard a lot of people say you don't see them anymore uh, or you certainly don't see them in the same numbers that you once saw them. Uh, and uh, not so long ago, they were in your face. You couldn't but see them. Yeah, I'd say some of that is due to the fact that when something happens initially and there's something new, we tend to notice it. But over a period of time, we then become blind to it. And I'd say there's some aspect of that happening around the community here itself. Uh, but you're right about resources. I mean, like, you know, I suppose from the guards' perspective, playing catch-up uh, from the recession in terms of the fact that community policing was probably reduced down to nil. Uh, and now they have to start building up relationships within communities. Mm. Uh, similarly, in relation to social services, uh, like you know, you know uh, that we've been trying to get the CCTV uh, cameras up and running in various mm. areas around town. And the bureaucracy itself no, in trying no, to get I'm, through I'm, that I'm, is unbelievable. I'm, I'm still not convinced. I, I think maybe uh, we'll start noticing them again if somebody else gets shot. Uh, but uh, I don't think they're there to the same degree that they once were. Yeah, well, I'll find out today. Simple as that. Mm. Uh, I'll find out today and, and see exactly whether they are they aren't. Uh, um, but I mean, this we're not going to police this away. Mm. It, it, it's as simple as that. We're not going to police this problem away. I mean, we're looking at mediation. Yeah, mediation. There's pros and cons attached to mediation. They, they tried it in London, the Metropolitan Police Service in London. They tried it in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. Uh, in the United States, they've tried it and gone away from it uh, because mm. it tends to normalise and legitimise some of the actions of uh, of drugs, gangs, and, and particularly some violent individuals who would never have any intention of changing their way of life. Uh, so there is pros and cons attached to that, to that method of intervention. Um, but the one thing that does seem to work across the United States and across the UK is investment in communities. And that's the one area that we don't focus our resources in. Well, you need to be looking at the very long term uh, to have hope that it'll have a, a positive uh, effect. And quite often people only think about these things uh, when there's a, a problem and in the immediate aftermath of that problem. Exactly. And that's it. And that's why I said when, when things die down, we just go back to normal because mm. we turn a blind eye to the fact that there are many people in this town and across this country who take drugs at weekends and the money they give to drug dealers helps to actually put a, uh, pay for 50,000 euros to be given to a hitman to take somebody out. That's facts. That's the reality of it. 
But nobody likes to think about that, you know, and nobody likes to talk about that or have discussions about mm. that, but that's what's actually happening. Okay, uh, and uh, is it possible uh, that they've resolved their differences, if you like? We haven't had anything would, since Keith Brannigan. Um, the guards seem to have left the town, or, you know, in the visible numbers uh, that they once were, which uh, prompted us uh, to call the press office. Uh, they say that there are probably covert units uh, at work, uh, but they wouldn't comment on uh, the status of the armed support unit. Uh, they say that's for operational reasons, uh, but uh, it has all fallen quiet to some degree. Yeah, and I think some of that, a large part of that, has got to do with the, the heavy guard of presence and the investigations that are going on. I mean, uh, when you look at Dublin, for example, the Hutchkinhan feud, uh, that's quietened down significantly because of the success of the guards in relation to uh, taking out a lot of people associated with the, with, with the Kinhan side. Uh, I think feuds themselves kind of, they do die down to some extent, mm. but they don't go away. And uh, particularly that they don't go away if you've got... Uh, a lot of people involved who are young between the ages of 18 and 25, 26, mm-hmm. and uh, people in particular who are making a lot of money and people who are probably using some of their own products as well. So that leads to a volatile mix. And uh, that's why anything can happen in relation to this feud and other feuds around the country. They can spark up very quickly and very violently, and then they can tend to die down again. Because at the end of the day, from from a drug dealer's point of mm-hmm. view, it's bad for business. Uh, and drug dealers and gunmen uh, seem to be at uh, the heart of all of this, or, or, or uh, violent individuals, uh, whether they're beating each other up or stabbing each other or using pipe bombs or setting houses on fire, as uh, the case may be, uh, and uh, behaving in a way that most people would consider to be questionable. But is it right to say that some of these people would consider themselves to be Roman Catholics uh, and would take their religion somewhat seriously, uh, and that they might heed the words of uh, the Catholic hierarchy, such as Bishop Bruter? Well, I don't personally believe that at all. I think uh, some people might be superstitious. I don't believe they're actually uh, Roman Catholic in terms of living to the standards set by the Roman Catholic Church, but in terms of being superstitious, probably uh, that's more realistic to say. I mean, the bishop... Uh, I think the mayor has uh, offered to uh, in, in, intercede as well. Many people with good intentions have offered to intercede, um, but I don't know whether it'll actually work uh, because basically you're trying to convince somebody uh, who has experienced either significant injuries or loss to put things to one side. And you're trying to talk to people, some of them uh, probably um addicted to drugs themselves. So what level of logic they could understand in that regard and during that conversation would be very questionable. So mm-hmm. at this point in time, I'd see it as uh, a policing problem initially and then uh, a long-term strategy for the communities and uh, and looking at pe- non-violent drug dealers and using methods such as uh, drug traumatic interventions that work very well in the UK and the, and the USA uh, to actually reduce the amount of uh, drug dealing and drug taking in communities um, okay. and that's where we have to go Alright, we'll leave it there for the moment Pio, thanks a, a million for joining us uh, this morning as always, uh, that's Labour Party Councillor Pio Smith 
Well, tomorrow is Budget Day and uh, some will argue it will be an opportunity uh, for the government to do something about uh, the housing and homelessness crisis. It seems as uh, though the Help to Buy scheme uh, will be extended. uh, Altered version of uh, that uh, will be announced uh, tomorrow. But at this stage, uh, there uh, doesn't seem to be too much uh, in terms of Uh, what we're hearing uh, about moves uh, to help with uh, the ongoing crises at this stage. Margaret McCormick, Information Officer with the Irish Property Owners Association, is on the line. Good morning to you, Margaret, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, What would you be hoping to hear from Pascal Donoghue tomorrow? Good morning. I I would be hoping that he would look at the sector, the private rental sector, and decide that it's an important sector and that we need to protect and retain our existing landlords as well as encourage more landlords into the sector. Because by doing that, we would actually have more property available. It would help supply and it would help um, more accommodation is is absolutely required for people who need it. So as far as I'm concerned, it's a no-brainer. It makes absolute sense to deal with uh, encouraging investment in private rental sector to provide homes for people that require them. To support landlords, in other words. Well, supporting landlords is, in one way, a landlord a landlord invests hmm. to make a return, but they can invest in investors can invest in any range of goods. We want them to invest in the private rental market because when they do that, the state benefits. We now have, if once an investor invests in a, in a property to rent, there is a home available for somebody. Hmm. So. It's, it's more for the state. We're part of the solution. We're not the problem. We're part of the solution. So we need, we need fair tax treatment for the, for the sector so that people will come into the sector and stay in the sector. And then long term, there'll be enough property around for everybody that requires it. Now, I, I mean, obviously, the mm. state has an obligation with, with social housing, which is separate. But the private rental sector is extremely important. There will always be people who will need accommodation, um, people coming into the country, mm. people that are going to college. Uh, often when you finish work or finish school, start into work, you need accommodation in different places around the country. Uh, and until necessary. such time, uh, on top of all of that, until such time that uh, the government is in a position to offer social housing uh, to people, uh, it will need properties uh, that are available uh, whether that's uh, through renting in the private sector or otherwise uh, but is it that people are finding other investments more attractive than going into property and renting it out? It is and it's also that existing landlords in in the sector are finding it very complicated. I mean it is very bureaucratic. The legislation around it is very complex. It is changing all the time. Uh, you need to, when you invest in something, you need to have confidence that, that when you start out, and it, that things are not going to change. Mm. I mean, obviously, obviously, rents will go up and rents will go down. That's, that's a natural course of things. But it's, it's the fundamental changes around the legislation that are problematic um, for, for landlords. Mm. I mean, when they brought in the rent pressure zones, they brought in, it was a very blunt instrument, but it didn't take into account low rents. Mm. So we have people who had very low rents servicing mortgages and they had no way of, of even bringing them, bringing them up beyond 4%. So it, 
like there has to be a fairness in something. You, you, you can't just invest in something and then midway through it that the rules change. And we're hearing that there'll be an increase in, in carbon taxes and uh, that the government will announce some uh, measures to mitigate uh, those increases on the cost of fuel. Uh, we did hear from somebody uh, who rang into us this morning who said, there's nothing I can do about it. I, I, I rent my house uh, and uh, I have to just heat it. So that means buying oil. So in effect, there's nothing here for me except uh, having to pay €15 uh, per fill extra. Uh, Can something be done in terms of uh, the house becoming more energy efficient? Well, that would be that would be excellent. But at the moment, uh, th- there's nothing uh, in in place for landlords uh, around that. So, if we were looking at if if they allowed something like the money spent on making a rental property more energy efficient, if they allowed that to be offset in the year that you did it. So you 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 obviously have a cost. We have a cash flow issue. So we have a cost. We pay it, and we can recoup it immediately within that year. So that would be that would be a win win for everybody because the the. Uh, uh, property would become more energy efficient. It would encourage investors to make properties more energy efficient. It would reduce the energy costs from benefit tenants. It creates employment with consequential tax payments. And it will help reduce carbon emissions. So that's that's a no-brainer. It really is. It's something that would be very useful for everybody. Okay. It, you know, it would work for on all levels for everybody. Okay, well, we'll see if it's uh, one of uh, the measures announced uh, tomorrow, but uh, we leave it there for the moment. And thank you, as always, for joining us here today. Margaret McCormick, Information Officer with the Irish Property Owners Association, brings our programme to its conclusion today. Before we go, let me remind you, there'll be a podcast available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon, if you'd like to listen back. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Murray in the control term. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am, right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.